Hey, Crystal. Hey, Joseph. Would you like to talk about that section of a Chesterton book that I read aloud two weeks ago? I would. Listen in to hear it. Welcome to A Word from Our Outpost. With Joseph and Crystal Gruber. A podcast for Catholic disciples who are wrestling to be missionary-minded in their normal, everyday lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, our actions by thy holy inspiration, and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that every word and work of ours may begin in thee, and by thee be happily ended. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chesterton's The Catholic Church and Conversion. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, wonderful. Did you ever read the whole book? No. But you listened to that whole episode? I did. Wow. Excellent. I sure did. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Parts of it felt very familiar to my own conversion, which is always fun. Do tell. Well, I particularly like how, um, I mean, there's this line that actually happens to be right in front of me. This, this experience of going from sort of learning about the church and thinking it's kind of neat but he, he says at some point, I never expected to become Catholic any more than I expected to become a cannibal, right? Like there's this sort of intellectual curiosity. Um, but then, That's definitely a paraphrase. Yeah. But he then says later on um, about the third stage, perhaps the truest and the most terrible is when a man is trying not to be converted. He has come too near to the truth and forgotten that truth is a magnet. Should we take a step back and review the whole thing? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Brilliant. You are brilliant. Oh, no, you, you were right. I was wrong. You found it. You, you almost word for word did I quote. Had, I had no more idea of becoming a Catholic than of becoming a cannibal. From Chesterton himself. From Chesterton himself. You were right. I didn't think he was that explicit. You, you're right that I was right. <laughs> So, so gracious you are. He's talking about these three phases of conversion, right? Where he first talks about being interested in the church. Being fair. Yeah. Not wanting the church to be attacked unfairly. Yeah. And and at least for me, this was sort of, in my conversion, it was, oh, well, I have friends that have, I have many Catholic friends and they told me there was a class, a.k.a. RCIA, and they told me things like it had been around the longest. So I thought I should, I should learn about these things. I, I didn't expect to actually become Catholic. I also had non-Catholic friends who were warning me about the dangers of idolatry within the Catholic Church. And I thought, I don't know what idolatry even is. I was raised in a totally non-religious household. What does that word even mean? And so it was very much for me an intellectual curiosity, which I think corresponds yeah. to this first phase that... The wanting to be fair to it. Mm -hmm. You've been around for a while. I might as well hear you out. Yeah. And then... And then, then you were becoming fond of it? Yeah, I did. And sort of discovering all kinds of neat things. This was interesting because in some of the aspects where I had non-Catholic friends sort of warning me about the Catholic Church, about things that I didn't even have a language for understanding. When the Catholic Church gave me a language for understanding and a proper, underst and a proper 
view of the thing. So for example, our relationship to Mary, I was like, oh, this is, this is actually really beautiful. This is another mom. This is, this is a feminine, strong, yet quiet model to follow. So yeah, I was like, I I actually like these things that I'm learning about kind of neat. And then, and then I was sitting with sister Ellen and she said, so are you planning on coming into the church at Easter? Which was like a month away. And I looked at her and I felt a little bit of terror when I said, I guess so. <laughs> very, very, very adamant. <laughs> and, and so this sort of the third running away from the church, like I, I, that tension was definitely inside of me, even during Easter vigil, this like, what am, what is this? Do I, do I really want to do all of this? Do I, I mean, I do think these things are true, but. So while you were listening, you felt like he was actually describing what you experienced in your own conversion. Yes. Wow, look at that G.K. Chesterton. I think it's remarkable because most accounts of conversion, I've heard people mention this final stage of terror or a case of the the jitters or, or something like that. But that's not usually discussed when people are trying to think through, okay, what are the steps that people tend to go through in the process of converting? They don't usually mention that third step. You are correct. And I wonder why that is. I forgot it was there until Chesterton reminded me. Until you reminded me through Chesterton. And I, it's interesting because I, I've seen it in RCA candidates. I've helped with, I've been participated in a few RCA classes since I came into the church that way myself. And I, I've, I see it in their eyes. <laughs> um, and it's also interesting because I think it's not a secret that the retention rate of converts through RCAA is not terribly high. Oh, I mean, the retention rate in marriage is not incredibly high either. And I think there's some similarities between the two. Yeah, and it makes me wonder if, if we did do a better job addressing this particular moment and feeling if that would, to know that that doesn't mean that you're making the wrong choice if you feel this fear, <laughs> this holy terror, and and if we addressed it, if that would be a helpful thing. I do wonder that. Hmm. And I think he lived in that that stage between being fond of the Catholic Church and then terrified that he might join for quite a while. Yeah. He he was on the cusp of converting to Catholicism for years and years. He even wrote orthodoxy before his conversion, mm-hmm. which fascinates me. Yeah, you'd think it would have a little bit more appeal more broadly to Christians because he did write it as a non-Catholic. But I think for some people, Chesterton is just a little bit more... Well... He's a little bit more difficult than C.S. Lewis, who was writing for a radio audience. He also makes more local references that won't make as much sense out of 1920s and 1930s England, London. But yeah, so 
back to the main point, he lived within this tension, this fear of becoming Catholic for years. It's like an engagement that goes on and on and on. So he seems rather uniquely placed to comment on that third stage of fear. Mm-hmm. Were there other things about the text that I read that he wrote that interested you, Crystal? There were a few things that stood out to me as well, if you need a moment to think. I do need a moment. Why don't you? I, I found it fascinating that... So there, there was a debate a number of years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, about whether it is always and everywhere immoral to tell a lie. And this sense of, you know, to everyone is owed the truth, to tell somebody a falsehood with the intent to deceive them if they have a right to know it, or is it, or does everyone always have a right to know the truth? And the classic example was that of Nazis knocking at the door and you're hiding Jews in closets and under floorboards and the like. What do you say? Can you lie to them under those circumstances? And there were staunch, I don't know, truthists who said, you must always tell the truth. Everyone is always owed the truth. And other people more practical saying, well, you, you better lie. That, that was the whole point of you hiding them. What, did, did you forget the part where you said you would hide them? <laughs> and for Chesterton to just toss off that, of course, in, in the Catholic moral tradition, there's this idea that there may be an occasion, such as I think he, he mentions uh, Chinese torturers coming after children, then you have not only a right to deceive, but you better do a good job deceiving. And he just accepted that and moved on. That he thought that the debate was not in the Catholic world, but the debate was actually outside of the Catholic world on that topic. Which was really interesting to me, because I've gone back and forth on that question myself. Not in real life, I haven't had to hide anyone from people hunting them. But conceptually, to understand what is the good of lying, is there any good in lying? So that one stood out to me it, it, as a as something that for Chesterton was a sort of settled question in the Catholic world that was unsettled for me a number of years ago. I so, don't know if you have any comments on it. So that that Chesterton has sort of an intellectual clarity around things that you thought might be more difficult as a Catholic that he's actually saying are simpler as a Catholic. In, in this particular thing, yes. I don't, I, I haven't actually thought about the other topics that he brought up as much. But that particular, well, yeah. and I had considered cutting that because anyone who pulled out the book, The Catholic Church and Conversion, or looked up the text file that I had linked in the show notes, they would note that I, I, very liberally added in ellipses and cut things out. And I initially thought of cutting this one because I thought this might be too controversial in the Catholic world to show that Chesterton thought that this wasn't even a topic, whereas I think this debate still rages in some Catholic circles. And apparently within... My head. <laughs> I have many debates running well nigh constantly in my head. Mm-hmm. That is one of them. Moral of that story, if you're hiding from torturers or the like, I might not be the best person to hide you. <laughs> and now that I say that out loud, uh, 
I think I'm starting to settle more on Chesterton's side. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Fruit of the podcast. Interesting how these things come about. So this first stage is this more, is where these intellectual decisions and explorations occurred. Were there other um, points from the first stage that you want to talk about, Joseph? Or is there... Well, I mean, I, I think he just cut through a lot of common arguments against Catholicism, showing that they weren't actually all that sensical for a Protestant world, especially a Calvinist-leaning world, to say that uh, we were saved by faith alone. That for the Protestants who believe in being saved by faith alone, them saying that Catholics don't care about morality doesn't make any sense. Because Catholics actually think that a great deal might rely on the choices that we make. And so morality would have a very important place in Catholic teaching. I thought that was an interesting piece. But no, in the, in the being fair to, to Catholicism, to just, uh, just look at the arguments being made against the Catholic Church and say, okay, what are they saying the Catholic Church believes does it say that? What would it, What would the Catholic Church look like if it did say what the, it's being accused of saying? Which is the attitude we should be having toward most any institution, mm-hmm. right? To say, what is the accusation? How does that play out? Does that actually hold water? Or is this just somebody trying to take a cheap shot or make a straw man? So basically, Chesterton didn't like straw men arguments and he saw through them, which is great for us because his insight is helpful. And in entertaining them, it led him to a sort of fondness. Yeah. Just learning that the, the way that the church sees the world is really helpful. When he mentions the, the part, for instance, the convert discovers that scandal does not mean gossip. And the sin of causing it does not mean that it is always wicked to set, set silly old women wagging their tongues. Scandal means scandal, what it originally meant in Greek and Latin, the tripping up of somebody else when he's trying to be good. That a lot of people don't know what words mean. Mm-hmm. And they're using them without thought. And they don't realize that these distinctions matter. Yeah, this part really struck me as well. I think living in a world right now where people are redefining a lot of really important words. Also reading 1984 currently and the rewriting of language for new speak and, and cutting out lots and lots of words and making things mean less for the sake of controlling society and, and seeing that these sorts of things are also happening in our world today is really chilling. And then to read Chesterton as he discusses that the word scandal means something. And, and so even when there's a scandal within the church, like we're talking about a specific thing, this tripping up of somebody when he is trying to be good and that is scandalous. And regardless of when and where that happens, we can regard it as such. And then to know that that gossip is something else, mm-hmm. 
it has its own set of categories, you know, detraction and libel and, and slander, backbiting, as uh, some of gossip is called. But we don't need to make our vocabulary smaller and get confused about these different things. We can look into what these words really mean, and the church has a lot to offer, especially in particular when we start to think about how we can rectify when we fall into these sins. Yeah. I mean, to find out that the moral teachings of the church are not to eliminate fun, but to help us become better men and women who live in greater harmony with one another and are become more capable of living in reality, right? All of the sins of gossip are, are sins because they, they're injuring people and they're not actually drawing people into the conflict that they need to have and they're drawing other people into viewing others as horrible, they're ruining reputations. There's nothing good about gossip and yet it's treated as just, of course, people gossip, of course we should gossip, of course... A little bit of venting never hurt anybody. And for the Catholic Church to say, actually, it, it, it is hurting you. It, I mean, I don't understand the word venting. That That's one that's one of those fuzzy, almost new-speaky sort of words. But all these other categories of gossip, they do hurt people. And they're not okay. And when I do them, I'm a worse person. And I'm less capable of being truly happy. And I don't see any other institution that really speaks into this as much as the Catholic Church. Granted, we could be doing a better job of it. Maybe one of our episodes soon will be on sins of the tongue. Well, and he also then brings into this, in terms of the fondness, it's the use of Latin in Mass. And and this idea of, he says, it's not a question between a dead language and a living language in the sense of an ever lasting language it is a question between a dead language and a dying language an inevitably degenerating language and this idea that that when we can cling to a language that is no longer being used in the spoken word we have some stability in the words that we choose which is interesting yeah to use a word now that means basically the same thing it did 1500 years ago English did not look the same 1,500 years ago. It, there, there wasn't really an English 1,500 years ago. Not, not anything recognizable. Our dead, these true things, start to draw us in like a magnet. And he says, magnet with the powers of attraction and repulsion. Yeah, so this third stage being afraid of making a larger commitment, which makes absolute sense. He, he talks later on about how, right, it, it's not, it, it's one thing to conclude that Catholicism is good and another to conclude that it is right. It is one thing to conclude that it is right and another to conclude that it is always right. Right, and that fear of making that last jump of saying, well, you know, the Catholic Church, we shouldn't be unfair to her. Yeah, Catholic Church actually makes a lot of good points, everybody. Actually, all of the points that I've found it making, that I've explored, have been good. To go all that way, and then to make the final claim of saying, 
the Catholic Church actually might be such a thing that it continues to make right judgments to say that it is always right in this in, the, in these matters of faith and morals. And and that, that oh, go ahead. Well, and and what does that demand of me, right? So it's one thing to say I can see how gossip is not a good thing. It's another to say I'm going to stop gossiping. <laughs> and and it's another thing to say this this institution that taught me this and I found reliable, I'm going to listen to it on things that I even don't yet understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in regards to faith and morals. Yeah, which is, I mean, morals is everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And faith is everything that we believe. I feel like people say faith and morals is a way of saying, oh, it doesn't really include everything, but it actually includes quite well, a bit. I, I think that the reason why I say that is not because it doesn't include everything, but because the members of the church don't always practice them, right? And so then I think what happens is people say, well, oh, well, this, that, or the other person in the Catholic Church did this thing, and that's not what the church teaches. That's somebody making a mistake, a person making a mistake. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I lost you a little bit. <laughs> um, so I think another reason, just thinking about these stages of conversion. Oh, but I, but I, I, I seriously lost you. Uh, you. You were saying that people get tripped up because people aren't practicing what they preach, slash maybe aren't even preaching the things that the Catholic Church teaches. Mm-hmm. I was talking about how the Church has authority to teach in faith and morals, and I wasn't sure wh- where the connection was. I think the connection is understanding the distinction between knowing what the church is actually teaching in faith and morals and knowing the truth in her authority and that she's always right in those things and being able to separate that from the poorly lived reality of it. I feel like we were talking about two different things there. (laughs) So I was talking about faith and morals as like the domain's proper to the Catholic Church to teach. Yes. Upon and, and that the, they that it has the authority to teach on faith and morals. And that that encompasses it encompasses quite a bit. It will, so that was what I was saying. Yes. And I think you were saying something different over here about how we actually need to listen to what the Catholic Church teaches and not just what individual members of the church might be saying. Yes. Okay, but but those are two different things, right? Yes. Okay. So they're not connected? They're connected in my mind. But in words, though, <laughs> did, did they did they get connected in words? <laughs> the connection in words is when I hear people say, and I think especially during my conversion, when I would hear people say, well, the, something along the lines of what Chesterton says here, right? It's one thing to conclude that, that it is right and another to conclude that it is always right. I... What would happen? What happened in my mind during my conversion would be like, well, there's this priest, or where there, there's that lay person that did X, Y, or Z, or said X, Y, or Z that is not right, and they're Catholic, so the Catholic Church can't be right because this person isn't right, and that is a separate thing, right? But it gets during my conversion, I was looking to okay, the Catholic Church as an institution says these things. So it should be lived out by the people within the institution. 
what you're saying makes sense to some degree, probably from the outside. As a cradle Catholic, I'm just used to people not actually knowing what the church teaches, living it, sharing it. Yeah, and that didn't make any sense to me. Oh, well, that makes sense that it shouldn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense to me either. <laughs> like when I had, I had literally friends that were bringing me to mass saying, who were, who were cradle Catholics saying, oh, you don't have to believe everything the church teaches. And I was like, well, but if I'm going to join this church, then I, like, I'm not, I'm not going to join this church if, if they teach things and say that they're true. And I think that they're wrong. And so I was always very confused by... Yeah, so it sounds like they never made that final step. Personally. Personally. Yeah, that's probably true. So that's an interesting piece. Because people who are, quote, in the Catholic Church, end quote, who who don't make that final leap of saying that the Church is who she says she is. or, Or even make the first leap. Of being to, fair to her? To, of being fair to her, right? Like if it, for, I know, we know a lot of cradle Catholics who don't actually take the time to explore and be fair to her and to know what she really teaches, right? And so that. I get why they weren't connected because you were living through this stuff and you weren't just approaching it abstractly. Yes. Uh <laughs> Okay, this is why I didn't want to move on to something else because I, I knew that they must be connected. Yeah, because when you're going through this process and somebody says, like when I was going through this process and people were saying to me, oh yeah, I'm Catholic, and then it, they didn't go through this process and yet we're still claiming to be this thing that I felt like was terrifying and glorious and way beyond me and and then i had people who were just like writing it off like it wasn't a big deal or yeah i and so that's an interesting i mean that is part of the scandal right of of the catholic church because it almost made you someone trying to do good not join and that would have been a scandal Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I, I think this is why this third step is so incredible because it's sort of what I what I listen for when people say that they're Catholic is as they're telling their story, was there this moment of, oh shoot, this is real, oh shoot, this this is a meaningful commitment that will demand more from me than I've yet given. I think that's why this third step was something that stood out to me so much. And when people will say such things as, you know, the Catholic Church is really good on these teachings, but you don't really need to listen to her when she's talking about what to do in the bedroom or in the voting booth or... On Sundays. On Sundays. That, that those people who are saying that, to ask them the question, well, what, what was the commitment that you made to the church... And to see if they had this moment of terror, or if they're still, you know, have it have it in their wind, windshield rather than their rearview mirror. This moment of terror, of commitment, of saying, you know, I'm all yours. Because that's, I mean, that's the difference between someone who's 
married and someone who is just living with their girlfriend or boyfriend, right? And it's like, well, I, I haven't made a, a real commitment to them. It's convenient to continue living with them. It's more economical, some people say. But it's not, it's not the commitment. It's not saying, I'm with you to the end. Your life and my life, we're, we're entwining them. Mm-hmm. So that, that is an interesting piece. You wanted to take the conversation elsewhere. Do you remember where you wanted to go? Wherever it was, I don't think it was important anymore. Oh, wow. Maybe we covered it. Yeah, that's possible. But yeah, this this step to say the Catholic Church, it's not diabolical, it's not inhuman, it's probably at least human. Could it be divine? I've seen several debates recently, I think on Pints with Aquinas, and maybe one or two other places about the role of the, the Roman Catholic Church and the, the role of the Pope and you know people who are Eastern Orthodox or Protestant who are debating whether the Catholic Church is who she says she is, that she has not only apostolic authority, but the authority of St. Peter, which is to be the first amongst the bishops and to be the final arbiter. And to be the safeguarder, safeguarder, guardian, guardian of the profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, because that's what it comes down to. That that is what that is the thing worth debating when it comes to that third step, because to become Catholic and not believe that Jesus actually gave this particular church authority is not to become Catholic. Yeah. And it's a scary step that that's saying not only something about Jesus and his authority and the role of the Holy spirit, but also saying something about a very clearly broken body of people for them to continue to be able to carry out the, the will of the Lord, even in light of salvation history when we've seen other people charged by God to continue traditions fail. And so it is quite the leap. There is something terrifying about it. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why I really loved this. Because I realized I, I've had that moment of fear as well of saying, oh, I, I don't actually, I don't have to be Catholic if I don't want to be. I don't need to continue following this Jesus fellow. But if I do want to continue following this Jesus fellow, I think I have to be Catholic because that's the only thing that makes sense. And it wasn't all or nothing kind of thing. And this moment of being upon a precipice, looking down, saying, well, looking across, I suppose, and saying, I, of course I can see the other side because I've seen the lives of saints. I've seen the lives of holy men and women in my life. Do I want to make that leap? Do I want to join them? and live the kind of life that they're living, or at least try to do so? Or do I want to stay on this side and live whatever kind of life I want to on this side? And I, I, I think it's important to note that that's, it's not only okay to feel that fear, it, it almost wouldn't make sense not to feel it. Mm-hmm. I know some people who maybe haven't because of a special grace or something, but, but it's, it's, 
for the cradle Catholic, I think this is a sign of maturity of saying, oh, I, I could be otherwise, and this is what the commitment would be if I were to actually stay for real. And for the convert as well, for them to actually face that fear head on, it's just, it's healthy to face fear. Mm-hmm. And to face the reality. So again, this was a selection from The Catholic Church and Conversion by G.K. Chesterton. We, I podcasted it two weeks ago. If you listened this far and you didn't figure that out, I'm sorry. We could have made that more clear. But here we are. Anything to note for our dear listeners? Well, per usual, if you like us, feel free to rate us, share us. Review. Review us, all that good stuff. If you want to email us, hello at ouroutpost.org. We have a website up now, too, ouroutpost.org. Eventually, it will have all of our podcast episodes, but there's a lot of copy and pasting that we have to do. I think we've got like one or two (laughs) on the website. Don't go there for the website, for the podcast yet, but go to the website to check out what else we're up to. Yeah. And with that, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this conversation. I lift up to you, Joseph and myself, and our listeners, that we might be able to step into the beauty and the fear of saying yes to you. We might be able to do that anew every day. I pray for the grace to seek and pursue your truth even when it's scary and to live it better each day. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. From our outpost to yours, thanks for listening. And a special thanks to John Mark Skoke. That's S-K-O-C-H. For the music. Check him out on Spotify. 